We're looking at Romans 6, 12 through 14 this morning. Uh, for our visitors, we are in a, a long journey in Romans in a series we're calling Transformed uh, from Romans 12, 1. Therefore, I urge you by the mercy of God to be, do not be conformed to this world any longer, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And God's grace and salvation has a transforming effect that we would be unified by the gospel. And what we've seen in, in Romans 6, 1-11 through 11, was the, that God, in, through grace, through the gospel, has established a union uh, with us. And we, we've talked a lot about an illustration of that being marriage. And Paul, even in Romans 7, uses marriage as an illustration for what he is saying. And so today, we're going to lean on that a little bit. But understand this, uh, and again, I, I was thinking all week there's going to be a lot of visitors here who haven't had Romans 1 through 6 to kind of build a foundation, and, and we're jumping in here in, in Romans 6, 12. But understand, Paul is talking about in 1 through 11 that there has been a union, as John said, that has been established. We as, as sinners, through forgiveness of our sin, through faith in the gospel, have been united to Christ, a new relationship a new creation, a, a new, we exist in a new realm. And, and it's because of that, because of that, because of what God has done, Paul then can command what he commands beginning in verse 12. And, and that's huge. It's, it's hugely important that you grasp that. Everything that, you see it on your handout, everything that God commands is always built upon what he has done. Okay, that, that's what makes, the, this isn't moralism, this isn't working your way to God, this isn't earning God's favor, this isn't meriting God's favor, this is responding, rightly responding to what God has done. Please see the difference. This is not working your way into God's favor. You know, and, and again, marriage is that illustration what, what you do as a married man or a married woman is because a union has been forged. You don't do that every day trying to establish a union or keeping a union. You do it because you have united yourself to another person. Right? Because of that union. And what we see here in verses 12 through 14 flow from having been united to God through Christ, through having had your sins forgiven. This is built upon grace. This is built upon the gospel. This is built upon the fact that if you call yourself a believer, you have been united with Christ. And you see that. You, you see that very clearly in how Paul writes this. But And, and, and again, e even in 1 John, I was reminded of this, of just the verse came to my mind. In 1 John 4.19, as I was preparing this, it says, In this we know love, that God loved us first, right? There's an example. God loved us first. He's established what biblical love is to look like, can look like, should look like. But God took the initiative, and that's huge. God has done this. Verses 1 through 11, all of that, God has done that. So what we see here, it's built on a union. It's built on the fact that if you call yourself a believer, this is what God commands of you. But it's not moralism, it's not legalism, it's not trying to earn your way to God. This is because it's already been earned. And you see on your main point there, when we truly grasp this, and, and again, 
what Paul, the, the catch here is verse 14, really. It's, it's, a, it's a, a big verse and a lot of misunderstanding. But when you, when you truly grasp the grace of God that has been made available to sinners through the gospel, when you grasp your forgiveness, when you grasp the, the debt that has been forgiven, when you grasp the, the, the totality, the significance of the gospel, Believer, you will burn with a zeal. The word there is zeal. That's the word I want to focus in on today. You will burn with a zeal for God. And it's interesting, even the kids sang about that this morning. That zeal compels you. The kids sang earlier, the love of God compels. That's out of 2 Corinthians 5, 14. And, and, and we actually will look at that verse later on. That Paul says the love of God compels him to live a certain way. Again, this is not more, it's not earning your way to God. This is responding to what God has done. This is the power that we've spoken of over the last few weeks that enables us to deny sin, to kill sin, to hate sin. Again, all of this is built upon Romans 6.1. Paul is answering the question. Look back in Romans 6.1. John read it. What shall we say then? Because Paul in Romans 5.20 said, Where sin abounded, grace much more abounded. And Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be. The, the lie was that grace enabled a, a, a casual attitude to sin. That's the lie. That's the lie that Paul is getting at. And you see him build on that. He answers the same question in verse 14. Shall, sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. This is why Paul, this zeal that we're going to get to that he talks about, that even in verse 11 he says, consider yourselves dead to sin, alive to God. Verse 10, the, the death he died, he died once and for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. That's your, that's your example. This is why Paul can be confident that grace doesn't lead to more sin. Grace leads to a denial of sin. And again, marriage is that illustration. We're going to use that all throughout here. My vows to Karen didn't encourage moral laxity. My vows to Karen made, established accountability that to the contrary. It established the context for faithfulness, not moral laxity. The union that was formed formed the context for all of our behavior. My behavior doesn't establish the marriage. It, 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 it shows that it's there. The context is the marriage. And that's what Paul is saying, that grace does not encourage moral laxity. Grace doesn't give the believer the freedom to live however they want to live and just when they die, flash this get-out-of-jail-free card and it all be okay. That's not at all the gospel. And everything that Paul says here, these three commands flow from the context of a union having been established by grace through faith between sinners and a holy God. And, and again, what you see here, we saw this, we talked about this last week, verses 1 through 11 establish the indicative in the Greek. It indicates what God has done. Now, therefore, Paul will give the imperatives, meaning what you do in response to what God has done. Because God has done this, this makes all the sense in the world, what we see here in verses 12 through 14. 
And, and look, look at verse 12. Look at what he says. We, we say this over and over. What's the first, if, 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 what's the first word in verse 12? Therefore. Again, help me out. What have we said? When you see the word therefore, what does that tell you? Yeah, you got to find out what it's there for. What Paul is doing is saying, because of everything I've already written you. Whenever you read therefore, you got to go back and read what was written beforehand. If I just walked up to you out of nowhere and I said, Steve, therefore I need you to do this. You're, you're thinking, okay, help me. What, what happened to make you think you can, right? But if we had an ongoing conversation and then I say, okay, therefore I need you to do this. It makes all the sense in the world. There's a context here, there's a relationship, there's a union that's been forged by grace through faith between a holy God and sinners. Therefore, what Paul writes here in verses 12 through 14 make all the sense in the world. And reality is they make no sense for a believer not to live this way. Please see that. It actually makes no sense for a believer not to live the, what, with the way that Paul commands here in verses 12 through 14 if indeed you're a believer. So, so I want to jump in and show us these, these three imperatives, these three commands, and they're going to form the outline for today. And then I, I want to bring us to a conclusion um, that, that I, I'm excited about because God, just in His grace and reading other books and actually a, a Bible study that I'm doing with a couple of other guys, uh, God led me to a place that I want to, and, and, and something that I want to share with y'all because I believe it's a picture of why Paul can write verse 14. And so if you see it on your handout, three commands. The first command is this. Again, how do we live, believer? Paul is speaking to believers. He is speaking to people who have trusted Christ for the forgiveness of their sin. He, they are trusting Christ alone for their righteousness. That's who Paul is writing to. That's a believer. Not someone that grew up in a church. Not somebody that hangs around the church. Again, I can hang out around a used car lot. That don't make me a used car salesman. This is someone who is trusting in Jesus Christ for their righteousness. Who is believing alone in Jesus Christ for the, for, for the forgiveness of their sin. Paul says first in verse 12, look at it. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you may obey its lust. Point number one, because we have been united with Christ through faith, believers are commanded to not let sin reign. And how do we do that? By you, do you do that by obeying its lusts? Paul is going to deal with this in verse 16 of Romans. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves to the one you obey? When you obey sin, you're a slave to sin. When you obey Christ, you're a slave to Christ. Paul is saying, do not let sin reign, believer. Why? Because of what he just said. You're dead to sin. You don't exist in that realm anymore. As such, your whole attitude towards sin, your whole attitude about your life, about what your life is about, about the glory that you're to live for, all of that is different because you have been united with Christ. And what we see here in verses 12 through thir and 13, listen, they're commands. And, and I, I realize we, we live in a society where we... we democracy and all these great things, but we, our, our hair stands up when we start talking about commands because of the world we live in. These are not optional. 
These are not, oh, well, Chris, we pay you to be good. I guess that makes y'all good for nothing. I don't know. But listen, this ain't about me. This isn't like, oh, wow, you went to seminary. You got to do that. Hey, you're the pastor. You, 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 this, all believers, not optional. These are imperatives in the Greek. These are commands. They would have understood this with regards to even lordship of Christ. He's, if we confess with our mouth Jesus as Lord, Submission doesn't be, it's not optional at that point. Is he Lord or is he not? Is he king or is he, is not, or is he not? And, and I get it that our flesh fights it, but that's why Paul writes this. This is the mindset that we are to have as believers. Do not let sin reign simply because you're under grace. And what Paul says here, you see it on your handout, Paul is saying that believers are to make a deliberate and decisive commitment that they will not let sin reign. A deliberate and decisive commitment that they are going to seek to not let sin reign. Why? Because you've been united with Christ. And again, go back to marriage. I have united myself to Christ, there, to, to Christ, I've done that too. I've united myself to Karen. Therefore, listen, I, I have to consider myself dead to all other women. Are there other women around? Yeah. Are, are, there, other, are there beautiful women around? Yeah. But listen, my flesh, I have to consider myself dead to all other women. Why? Because I've united myself to Christ. And listen, if I didn't do that, you rightfully should have a problem with me. If I didn't fight that, if I didn't seek to do that. I have united myself to Karen, therefore, I consider myself dead to other women. And, and listen, you as a spouse would be greatly offended if your spouse did not live that way. My question is this, if we deserve that as sinners... How much more does Christ not deserve that, who, by the way, is a perfect spouse? Because, listen, I am far from perfect. And, 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 and you know that. My family knows that for sure. They've vacationed with me. They've hung out. They know. Listen, if Karen wanted to find a reason, trust me, she's got plenty of reasons to walk away. And yet, by faith, she stays. Why? Because she made a commitment. And he's saying, don't let sin reign. Again, and even in, even in our marriage, again, it's more than a, a one-time ceremony. Oh, I, I, I showed up at the altar, I said my vows, now I'm going to live however I want to live. Nobody would, nobody would go for that. Nobody would be okay with that as a marriage. It's a daily commitment, Karen to Chris, Chris to Karen, daily. It's, it's not accidental. Look, my fidelity to her is not a, well, Karen, let's see how the day goes. Let's see what the day holds. Depends on what kind of offer I get. You know, I can't make you any promises. Come on. But, but listen, we laugh, but that, if we're honest, deep down, is that not somehow, sometimes how we treat Christ? 
even showing up here on Sunday to worship. Let me see how the weekend goes. Let me see if I get a better offer. Right? I mean, imagine if Karen said, hey, when can I expect you home for dinner tonight? I don't know, Karen. I got to see if I get a better offer. But, but I, and again, you know, I, I, we're, forgive me for all the visitors because we, we, I try to be very real and honest and we, we're not afraid to say the hard things here. So forgive me. I kind of say forgive me. I feel bad. The people please during me. But, but we're going to be real with this. Isn't that how we treat Christ sometimes? Let's see what the day offers. Let's see if I get a better offer. What about one another? Serving one another. Well, I, 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 oh, let me see. Let me see if my schedule allows me to serve you. I, I was so blessed this week, and I don't want to, I don't want to embarrass them. But I called Raymond. Raymond had his appendix taken out a couple weeks ago, and uh, uh, I called Raymond this week again to check up on him. And I said, Raymond, do you have any needs? And he says, Well, I did, but and 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 he says, Daniel is Daniel, and and I am grateful for you. He went and mowed his yard. He can't lift five pounds. He can't even come up here and wor- lead worship like he does because his guitar plays more. And Daniel took the time, lives in Brooksville, drove on his own to mow his yard. Why? Because of the gospel. Imagine the effect a community would have millions of reasons why not to do that. You've got your wife, you've got your own family, you've got work, a million reasons why not to do that, and he did it. And, and, and again, it's because of the gospel. And the challenge for us guys is this, every single day as a believer is a battle in who you're going to serve. Every single day. The world, the world wants to devour you, believer. That's why 1 John 2, 15, do not love the world or the things of the world. For anyone who loves the world or the things of the world, the love of, the God is not, the love of God is not in them. 1 Peter, we saw it. For chapter 5, Satan prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. This world and its system wants you to conform to its ways, to its, to its uh, ethic. To its rationale. And the fight, believer, the fight is you and I have been redeemed. Spiritually, we exist in a new realm, and yet we still live in the old realm. I, 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 in the grand scheme of things, I've already been glorified. It's a done deal, and yet I still live in this body of flesh. My faculties, I've got to make the decision every day, and we'll see it in just a minute. Whom am I going to serve? Every day. Every single day. Why? Because, again, and how do we do that? You see it on your handout. The battle is fought through decisions we make and relationships we form. Every single decision that you make, believer, is a significant decision. Every single relationship you make, believer, is a significant relationship. That's why 2 Corinthians says in verse chapter 6, do not be yoked with unbelievers. Why? Because it's, it doesn't make sense. Every single decision you make is going to come with consequences. It's going to take you down a road that you have no idea. 
That's why in Ephesians 5, it says, be careful how you walk, verse 15, not as unwise, but as wise. Listen to this, making the most of every opportunity. Why? Because the days are evil. Every single day, every single moment of every day, it's disciplining our minds and our hearts to say, my union with Christ reigns supreme over this moment. My union with Christ reigns supreme over this moment. My union with Christ reigns supreme over this moment. I'm going to live for God's glory on this moment. I'm going to live for God's glory in this moment. It's not a, well, it's not a showed up at the altar 10 years ago. And Paul says that you, again, you, why do you do this? Do not let sin reign. How do you let sin reign? By obeying its lusts. And, and you see it on your handout, the word that Paul uses here for lusts points literally to anything that is in conflict with the word or the will of God. Anything that is in conflict to the word of God. Listen, just because you feel it, just because you think it, don't mean it's right. This is where 2 Corinthians 10 comes back. Taking every thought captive. Where? To the obedience of Christ. Training myself to think, okay, the the word is the filter. Every single one of my thoughts being filtered through the word of God. Does this thought, does this thought line up with the word of God? Not just action. Does this thought, because here's what I've learned about Chris. If I think it long enough, I'm going to do it. I'm going to begin believing it, and then there's a good chance. Listen, nobody wakes up just on a Monday morning and thinks, you know what, I think I'm going to do something dumb today. You've been thinking about doing something dumb for a long time, and that seed has taken root, and now you're doing it. You don't just calendar it. You know what, I think I'll ruin my life today. No, you thought about it. And that's where Satan is so subtle. We think, oh, well, no one knows. Listen, it's destroying our hearts. You're letting sin reign even in your own heart and in your mind. And that's where, again, the, it's, you see there in the handout, it's physical actions, but it's mental thoughts. It's not just what you do. It's what you think. What you think. And Proverbs talks about that. As a person thinks, so he is. And, and what Paul starts here in, in verse 12 is an overarching concept, broad scope, a broad approach to life. You see it in your handout, because, and here's the philosophy. Because of our union with Christ, believers cannot let sin be the preoccupation of our lives. That's a broad, overarching thought. Because of your union, no different than in marriage. Because I'm united to Karen, no other woman can preoccupy me. No other family can preoccupy me in that sense. My my focus is on her. Broad scope. Broad, start here, the broad. Do not be preoccupied, believer, with the world and with sin. Why? Because whatever we are preoccupied with, we will ultimately follow. Whatever you preoccupy yourself, your movies, your reading, your listening, all that stuff. We think, oh, it's, 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 it's immaterial. It's just a movie. No, it's not. 
because we filled our minds with all most of the stuff that we fear, most of the stuff we worry about. You know where we got it from? Movies. Reading novels. It's filled our minds with all these potential things that could happen and we walk around scared. And they're lies. Do not let sin reign. Broad, overarching concept. Do not let sin reign. Secondly, verse 13. Do and, okay, and, now he drills down a little more narrow, a little more specific. Do not go on presenting the members of your body as sin, to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. All right, you see it there on your handout. Because we have been united with Christ, again, all this goes back to our union, believers are commanded to, listen, not make any part of your lives available to sin. Not make any part of your life available to sin. And we looked at this last week. This was part of the discipline of why we did what we did last week, and I know that made some of us uncomfortable, and I know it was a little while, it took a little while, but we walked you through these things because I think sometimes, you know, and I think about this with regards to relationships. Sometimes when you're around somebody and you know something's there and there's a fence there, you'll busy yourself and busy yourself so that you never have to stand face to face with that person that there's an offense to and have to deal with it. So we'll ignore it for busyness, and I think we do that with God too. So last week, we took time to sit there, quiet, and we walked through different things. And, and I'll give you an example of this. And this, I, I will confess this before you guys. Uh, eyes. Most of us, when we see eyes there and what we watch and what we expose ourselves to, most of us, if we're honest, we know where our minds go with that. And, and we say, well, I'm not doing that. Clear as day, clear as day. You know, it's hard to find good shows to watch and clean shows sometimes. And, and I'll watch um, shows like uh, there's a show called Selling Jets. And sometimes I'll watch that. And um, it's down there with, with Hallmark. And that's where all of our shows end up being, around Hallmark Channel. You know, uh, Selling Mansions is another one sometimes I'll watch. Or I'll watch this show. It's called Bargain Beach Hunters. You know, and, and, and again, in my mind, it's benign. And yet, sitting there asking the Lord, Lord, is there anything? Here's what the Holy Spirit said to me. Chris, be careful with those shows because they might just create a spirit of covetousness in you. You might be real discontent with your own life by watching other people do these things. By the way, that stuff ain't even half real. Again, it's not, there's nothing inappropriate going on there. And yet Satan wants to use that in my mind, in the Holy Spirit, because we sat quiet, said, Chris, be careful watching those shows because now all of a sudden, oh, I need to paint my house and I need to do this in my house. And, oh, I, I don't have a beach house and I don't have a jet. And, you know, what about all of a sudden my house is not, like that person's bought a 10th. I mean, I watched one of the shows one time and the guy was deciding between a $31 million mansion and a $7 million mansion. And he said, why choose? I'll take them both. I'm like, Hello. But the Holy Spirit, you know what it said to me? Beware of covetousness, Chris. Be, I, Chris, those shows may just create a spirit of discontentment in you. And 1 Timothy 6 says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. All of a sudden, my house ain't no, ain't no good anymore because look at their house. 
And you see how subtle sin is? And I say that just to say, had I not sat quietly, God wouldn't have revealed that. And, and literally, literally, what's, what Paul is saying here, see our handout, is do not let any part of your life be used as a tool for Satan. Listen, your work could be used as a tool for Satan if you're doing it to your glory. Your kids' grades could be a tool for Satan if, you, if they're not doing it to God's glory. If that's where you're finding your worth, if, if your kids' sport endeavors or, you know, if this and, or, or academic endeavors or scholastic, whatever, Satan wants to use all those things as tools where we get the glory. And Paul says every, from the smallest part of your member to the, to the, of your body to the largest, commit it to God's glory. And again, it goes back to the union. And we, we read this last week as we were sitting quietly, but Ephesians 5, 3, listen to what Paul says. Im, but immorality or any impurity, any impurity, Ephesians 5, 3, or greed must not even be named among you. And here's the catcher. Why? As is proper among saints. Where does Paul take it? Back to your identity as a believer. Why are these things inappropriate? Because you're a, you say you're a believer. That's the context. Paul is saying, stop letting sin reign over you. Even the smallest inkling of sin, get rid of it. And here's why. You see it on your handout. Belie you see it on your handout there. Believers must not let sin rule where it doesn't reign. Jesus Christ reigns over your life, believer. Therefore, Jesus Christ gets to rule in every part of your life. You would never say to the king, yeah, I know this is your territory. Hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rule this little bit of the land. I'm going to rule this little part of the kingdom to my glory. How do you think that's going to fly? It's not going to fly. And literally, Paul is saying, do not let sin reign. Why? Because sin doesn't rule. Or rather, don't let it rule because it doesn't rain. Not the smallest area of our lives. We should give not the smallest area of our lives a dominion to Satan's rule. Think about that. Is that our attitude towards sin? Sin has no authority to dictate your life as a believer. Do not let it rain. Do not be okay with the smallest hint. You go on to, to I love in Ephesians 5, he goes on to say, um, uh, not even a hint of immorality. And, and you see it there on your handout, the, the great truth is that, listen, all of us have given, given gifts and abilities. And here's the question that we're going to have to answer by faith. How will we, A, how will we steward that which God has given us? How will we steward it? This life God has given me, am I going to live it to me and my glory, or am I going to live it to God and His glory? Am I going to rule, or is Christ going to rule? 
Secondly, how will we put what God has given us into service? Put it into service. Not sitting back and saying, you know what, I'm just going to let it come to me. No, no, go out there. Looking for opportunities. Looking for ways to serve. Lastly, an overarching concept, whom will we serve with our lives? And that's what Paul says. Do not let your body be used as an instrument of unrighteousness. I mean, and you think about marriage. I mean, spouses, you wouldn't say, you know what, babe, my whole body is yours, but I got eyes for somebody else. That don't work. Hey, I'm going to give you six days a week, but on Saturday, I got, I'm going I'm to do whatever I want on Saturday. It's an all or nothing deal. And that's what Paul is saying. Every bit of your life. And, and, sit, and, 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 and even, here's one of the subtlest, and this is where Satan has duped us. We, we look at our lives and we think that there's no gross immorality. You know, I haven't committed adultery, I haven't killed anybody, I haven't done this. And you know what we do? We go on day by day living selfishly. And we think that that's not gross. We think that that's not a gross sin. And yet Ephesians, uh, Philippians 2, verse 2 and 3 says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another's as more important than yourselves. And again, even that, where does Paul ground that in Philippians 2? In Christ. Have this attitude that was also in Christ, that although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, even, even to the point of death on a cross. Emptied himself. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or empty conceit. And Satan has duped us into thinking, well, I'll just live my life for myself, and I'll just, uh, I'm not going to commit these, I'm just going to live selfishly. That's gross. And, and, and you see it here, you see it in your handout, Paul teaches us here in, in verse 13 that there's no neutrality when it comes to who we serve. Either we serve sin or we serve God. There's no neutrality. There's no like middle ground where I'm not doing either. No, no, you are. Even living for self, sin. We're going to get to Romans 14, 23, and Paul's talking about questionable things. And Paul says this, whatever is not done of faith is sin. No neutrality. Connecting every single not only the whole of my life, but every single part of my life, connecting it to the gospel. Connecting it to our identity in Christ. Connecting it to having been united with Christ. Why? Because it matters. Listen, you go at work, you go commit, you know, uh, you go steal a bunch of money from work. You don't say, oh, well, that's work, honey, that doesn't affect my family. Why? It's every little part is connected. Every little part of our life is connected to our identity 
with Christ, just like it is in marriage. And from the largest to the smallest part, Paul is saying, do not let sin reign. Overarching concept, but then the individual moment by moments of every single day, are we letting sin reign? Are we allowing our lives in any way to be used as an instrument of unrighteousness? Even consuming your day with, with your own stuff, instrument of unrighteousness. Instrument of unrighteousness. And, in, and instead of that, so not any part, don't let sin reign, don't offer even the smallest part of your bodies. And in contrast to that, those are the two negatives we see at the end of verse 13. But, and again, there's, there's, there's a, that's another word that when you see that, that's a big deal in the Bible. You know, I, I, I was telling somebody this week, Al, Alistair Begg, I, he at a conference I went to one time, preached a sermon uh, uh, from the passage that said, Naaman had leprosy, or Naaman was a righteous man, but he had leprosy. That's a big but. That's a big deal. Instead of doing that, and his points, I won't get in, I, should, I, I shouldn't even have gone there, but his points were very funny, but I, I, I don't want to distract from that, so I already have, so anyway. My mind, i got to cut that off, cut that off. I'll let y'all wonder, what were those points? But, in contrast to presenting yourself to God, I mean to sin, look at what he says, present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of, unright of righteousness to God. And, and ver number three on your handout, because we have been united with Christ through faith, believers are commanded to make ourselves, here it is, exclusively available to God. That's what Paul is getting at. Exclusivity. Offer ourselves exclusively to God. And think about this. Again, within the illustration of marriage, isn't that the essence of marriage? Exclusivity? I mean, after, I mean, after all, there's a lot of things that, that and a lot of wrongs that we can commit against our spouse. But jumping across the exclu exclusivity boundary, that's the worst of all. Why? Because that's the essence of marriage. Forsaking all others and choosing one. And I believe what Paul is saying here, we've got to understand this, and you see it on the handout, exclusivity is the very essence of Christianity. Forsaking all else, forsaking all other gods, even the God of self, and serving Christ. Again, marriage, one person setting aside all other persons forsaking all other relationships and committing themselves to one. That's the essence. If a marriage is to work, that's the essence. That's why, again, adultery is so devastating. It goes against everything that's the very fabric of your relationship. And I believe that's what Paul is saying in, in, in here is, you have been united with Christ to offer yourself to another to sin, spiritual adultery. It goes against the very fabric of who you are as a believer. The very, the very reason you and I have been saved, believer, is to glorify and live for Him. 
That's the very essence of our salvation. So to live for another, even self, that's sin. And again, Paul says you've been brought to life. You're alive from the dead. You have been resurrected from sin and its penalty and its power, and you have been been made alive. Why would you go back to that which is dead? Why would you go back and submit yourself to that which was killing you? And we think, oh, I'm in control of my sin. If you were in control of your sin, you'd stop. That's why Paul says, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but I will not be mastered by anything. Listen, it don't have to be ultra bad to be mastered by it. You think, I'm not mastered by the TV. Well, put the remote down. I'm not mastered by Facebook. Well, quit telling people everything you do every moment of the day that we don't even care about. Put it down. You don't need to tweet every thought that comes to your mind. Put it down. Here's the point. Satan has mastered you. Sin has mastered you. These things in the world have mastered I don't have time to read the word. But you, you posted 19 things on Facebook today. You tweeted 4,800 tweets. Ain't got no time for the word. You got time for the word. You got time. Exclusivity. Do you see yourself as exclusively available to God and his glory? Go back to the gospel and you see it on your handout. We have been made alive to Christ through the grace of God and the gospel. Therefore, live for Christ. Live for Christ. That's the very essence and purpose. Listen to this quote by William Tyndall. Remember that Christ made not this atonement that you would anger God again. Neither did he die for your sins that you would still live in them. Neither cleansed you that you should return to the puddle again. That you should be a new creature, but that you should be a new creature and live a new life after the will of God and not the flesh. That's why you've been saved. You see it on your handout. Because we have been united with Christ, we have to see ourselves as instruments of righteousness. Faithfulness. Exclusivity. And and that brings us to verse 14 within this. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Listen. Paul is answering the question again, as I said, in verse in, of, back, all the way back to verse 1. Should we let sin reign because we're under grace? Listen, and Paul can say that'll never happen if you're really consumed with the gospel. And again, think about this with regards to marriage. Karen and I don't have 600 rules posted all over our walls on how to live day by day, do we? No, we do not. Here's what regulates our relationship, love. We don't need 600 rules. What we need is love. What what guides the relationship is a zeal for one another, right? Is a is a love for the exclusiveness of one another. Is a living for if if I live for her under the umbrella of Christianity and she lives for me. Listen, I don't need a bunch of rules to regulate it. 
That's what Paul is saying. When you really grasp the gospel, when, when, and, and that's what you see on your handout, when we grasp the gospel rightly, the grace of God compels us. It's grace of God that begins to compel us and guide us, not a need for the law. Look at verse 14 of chapter uh, 2 Corinthians 5. For the love of Christ controls us. That word is compels, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose on their behalf. Why did he give you new life? Not to live for yourself. He gave us new life that we would live for his glory because that's the ultimate aim of man. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's what our salvation is about. And I think that's why Paul would say, we've talked about it before, like you say somebody is under the influence of, of alcohol or under the influence of drugs or under the influence of this. They're controlled by it. See what Paul is saying there? If you're under grace, you're controlled by God's grace. You live under the influence of grace, not the law. And, and Paul is saying that you will become zealous. That's why that was the main point for this God who saved you at his own cost. When you really grasp grace. When you grasp Romans 3 of how depraved we were and the depth of our sin and the, the justified wrath of God while we spent all those weeks talking about stuff that nobody wanted to hear about, until we grasp that, you won't be zealous for God. And we looked at Luke 6 and we looked at Matthew 18 and we looked at all these passages until we realized that our debt was insurmountable, that only Jesus, only God could pay it for us. We will never, never appreciate grace. And I believe Paul is saying here that, that we will be consumed with grace and consumed by the love of God lavished upon us and we will hate our sin. And, and I read, this is where I came across this quote this week. I was, I was doing a Bible study with some guys about the, the, uh, the jealousy of God and I came across this quote from J.C. Ryle. And, and listen to it, I think this sums up what Paul is saying here sums up why Paul would write that someone who really comprehends grace will not live for sin, but rather live for the glory of God. And, and I, I, I want to be the person that J.C. Ryle describes here, but, but I, I want us to be a church that looks like this. And, and I've said before that... that, that what I want more than anything for this church is that we would be a people consumed for the, with the glory of God. And I would probably alter that to say, I would, I would hope that we would be a people with a zeal, consumed with a zeal, zealous for the glory of God. And listen to this quote. It's a little lengthy, so forgive me, and I'll read it slowly, but listen, it's worth it. And then we'll close. Zeal in religion is a burning desire to please God, to do His will, and to advance His glory in the world in every possible way. Zeal in religion is a desire which no man feels by nature, which the Spirit puts in the heart of every believer when he is converted, but which some believers feel so much more strongly than others and that they alone deserve to be called zealous person. Listen, 
the power is in you. 2 Peter 1.3 says, seeing that his divine power has granted us everything we need for life and godliness. The power's there. It's what do you do with it? He says, a zealous person in religion is preeminently a man of one thing. It is not enough to say that they are earnest, hardy, uncompromising, thoroughgoing, wholehearted, fervent in spirit. Listen, I think all of us would say those are good things, and he's saying it ain't enough to be just that. that the, the zealous man or woman only sees one thing. They only care for one thing. They live for one thing. They are swallowed up by one thing, and that one thing is to please God. Whether they live or whether they die, whether they have health or whether they have sickness, whether they are rich, whether they are poor. By the way, these sounds a lot like marital vows, just saying for the illustration. Whether they please man or whether they give offense, whether they are wise or whether they are thought to be foolish, whether they get the blame or whether they get the praise, whether they get honor or whether they get the shame. For all of this, the zealous person cares nothing at all. The zealous person burns for one thing, and that one thing is to please God and to advance God's glory. If the zealous person is consumed in the very burning, they care not for it, for they are content. The zealous person feels that, like the lamp, they are meant to burn. And if consumed in the burning, they have done the work for which God appointed them. Such a one will always find a sphere for their zeal. If the zealous person cannot preach, work, or give money, they will cry and sigh and pray. If they cannot fight in the valley with Joshua, they will do the work of Moses, Aaron, and her on the hill. If the zealous person is cut off from working themselves, they will give the Lord no rest until help is raised up from another quarter and the work be done. I thought about Zerni Gano when I read that. I remember a man who committed his life to the glory of God and his greatest pain was not being able to do. This was a man who in his late 80s, I would go every Wednesday, we would fill his truck up with food and bring it back and we would unload it. And, and he sold his life out to the glory of God. And I remember him coming in my office one day crying because his health would not allow him to do all of the things that he once could do. And here was his resolve. Chris, here's what I'm going to do. I'll pray. And every week I would go to his house on Wednesday and we would sit out on the back dock and we would pray. And listen, I believe wholeheartedly we were all better because Zerny was praying for us. And I miss that. But Zerny was consumed with a zeal for God. I think that's what Paul is writing in verse 14. When we're consumed with a zeal for the glory of God... Sin will have no taste or desire. We'll hate it. Why? Because it's in contrast to who we are. You don't need 613 Mosaic laws. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 22, love God, love your neighbor. That's the greatest commandment and the second is like it. Love. Zeal for God. So my question in all of this, and again, heaviness of it but listen is that you can that be said of you do you singularly burn with a zeal for god or 
is it possible that you've been content with sin? That you're content with being lukewarm? That you've become content with simply going through the motions and externally avoiding some major sins, but internally or even in the smallest parts, your life is, you have allowed your life to be used as an instrument of unrighteousness. Can you say that you're zealous for God that way? Are you exclusively devoted to God? Is there, is there any part of your life that you're allowing sin to reign? Any part of your life that God is not getting the glory? And, and, and that's, that's what I, I... We're not there yet, and, and probably a lot of that has to do with my inadequacies, and I live with that. Listen, nobody is more, listen, nobody's more disappointed in Chris than Chris. And no, nobody hates Chris more than Chris. I promise you that. Nobody wishes Chris was a whole lot further down the road in a 38-year... And I'm not... Listen. That's not an excuse. But here's what I want. I want us to be zealous for God. And the heart behind everything we do is to try to help us and our kids be zealous for God. And I don't want to pastor a church that's respectable and sound and at the same time lukewarm for the things of God. I don't want to do it. And that's the tension. For me, that's the tension for you is to get consumed with things that placate people, that look good, that look presentable, that are acceptable. And all the while, we're lukewarm for the things of God. I don't want to pastor that church. The challenge for all of us is there are no there are no shortcuts to holiness. And until every single one of us commit to that, again, even a few of us that don't commit to that, the Bible talks about that will spread like gangrene. I don't want us to be okay with a little bit of sin. Listen, will we fight sin? Yes. Will we stumble? Yes. And we'll, we'll, do, we'll graciously deal with that, but I don't want us to be okay with it. I don't want us to be casual with it. And you see it on your handout. Because Christ reigns in a believer's life, there is power and the command to defeat sin. Listen, do not be okay with sin. Not actions, not attitudes. Only grace, listen, only grace will do for you what the law could never do. Give you a burning zeal to please God. And I believe that's what Paul, you see it on your handout, that is what Paul holds out in verse 14. Listen, exclusive zealousness for God. Listen, that is the ultimate secret to defeating sin. I believe that's what Paul is saying. When we have an exclusive zealousness for God, listen, you will crush sin. And, I, and I'll close with this illustration. Listen, we've said it before. We serve a jealous God, and we ought to be jealous for Him. If so, listen, 
somebody comes into my house trying to hurt my family, you know what? I'm going to risk my life protecting them. Why? Because I have an exclusive zealousness for them. And my challenge is we ought to be that way for the things of God. Because Christ gave his life up that we could have life. The perfect for the imperfect. That we would crush sin in our lives and that we would, we would again, have an exclusive zealous. I, I pray that we would be exclusively zealous for God in all things, even the smallest areas of our life. And if that's not you today, I'm available to talk with you, to, to pray. If you don't even know, who, if you're not sure you even know who this Christ is, that the kids are saying about, I'm available to you to begin this journey with Christ and have abundant eternal life. Exclusive zealousness for God.